0: Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All oh, right, you don't know who that is. Okay, he lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night, he used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman, likes to tell stories like this one that's called Two Nights at the Opera. One of the many things I love about living in Australia is that versatility isn't penalized. That's why for me, coming here was perfect. I could explore lots of different stuff. Here you can give anything a go. It's part of the culture. That's why when a friend told me they were interviewing men to be spear carriers for an opera by Prokofiev, I put my hand up. The Kirov Opera was performing this work to kick off the 2001 Melbourne International Festival, and I thought, why not? A rehearsal was called for 4.30 on Wednesday. The lobby inside the stage door was buzzing when I got there. As more people arrived, they formed little groups. Per usual, I didn't know anyone there, so I just watched. There were about 40 men jammed into that space when a guy named Rick finally shouted us to silence. Thank you all for coming, he said. Before we show you around the center, show you your dressing room and give you an orientation, I do have an announcement. The Kirov Opera was supposed to arrive yesterday. However, they're in Vladivostok as we speak. They were originally scheduled to fly over Dubai, but with the trouble in Afghanistan, they've decided it would not be safe since they're on a charter rather than a commercial airline. Okay, now, let me put this in historical perspective for you. George W. Bush decided to invade Afghanistan. It was right after 9-11. The world was in shock, and no one knew what was going on. The arrangement with the Kirov Opera had been settled long before any trouble in the Middle East. And before they actually made it here, John Howard and Vladimir Putin were both trying to find airspace for the plane to fly through. So, Rick finished his speech with, We're still planning to do a performance tomorrow night. That means you won't be required for the full amount of time today, but we will need you to come in later tomorrow and be prepared to stay right through the performance. We had a quick orientation about safety and security, were shown our dressing room, and got fitted for pants and tops that would be part of our costumes. That was it. When I got there the next day, I learned that the Kirov opera people had only arrived an hour before. There was going to be a performance that night, not only because it was a sold-out opening night, but also because the Russian performers got paid by the gig, and they didn't want to miss a payday. That's show business in any language. Backstage was alive. People were rushing around everywhere. Signs pointing out various wardrobe, makeup, and rehearsal spaces were printed in English and Russian. Most of the stage hands you saw were speaking Russian. We had been taught the Russian equivalent of good day, and were encouraged to say it to our Russian colleagues. All of them, that is, except the maestro. You were not allowed to say good day to him in any language. To be honest, that seemed very un-Australian to me. Maybe un-American, too. But we were temporarily in Russia, so all bets were off. My first real challenge had nothing to do with the maestro or the Russians. It was my costume. The pants and tops of the day before had a whole lot of other stuff added to them. First, I struggled with a pair of black tights, which were a new experience for me. Then there were black knee breeches with red spots and a matching top. After that, calf-length black boots. Then a metal breastplate and a helmet. And finally, a black cape on top of all that. When I looked at myself in the mirror, I looked like a conquistador from hell. After everyone had their gear on, we were ushered to the hallway for a rehearsal. They gave us numbers and told us to remember them. Then they lined us up. The odd numbers were pointing towards stage right and the even numbers towards stage left. I was number three. All of a sudden, number one took off toward our designated entrance. When we got backstage, our costumes were supplemented again. Somebody handed me a long stick with what looked like a battle axe on top. We got to our respective doors. We'd been told that there would be a trumpet fanfare, then a light would turn on just above our heads. That was the cue to open the door, step through, and stand at attention with our weapons and our upstage hand, arm extended. Seems simple enough. All of a sudden, my light came on. I yanked the door open and started to stride into position, but I hadn't calculated the height of my weapon very well, so it banged against the top of the doorway, and while I was on one side of the door, my weapon was on the other. I looked around, pulled the weapon in, and made a note to myself. On stage, it looked like chaos. It was meant to. I didn't know how many there were, but the entire cast was running around all over the stage like they were insane. A largish woman sort of ran in my direction, sort of pantomimed something, and then she ran someplace else. In a few minutes, the music climaxed and the curtain fell. That was our cue to leave the stage and close our doors. We had a lunch break and then recongregated back in the dressing room. Before long, Rick showed up. Line up, guys, he said. This is what you're here for. We took our places in the hallway, and suddenly number one was off. I was handed my spear and took my position behind door number three. There was a stagehand waiting for me, crouched down just to the right of the door. He looked up at me. I'll be opening your door for you, mate. I was reassured by his Aussie accent. Then I looked up to see that I was holding the spear low enough to get through the door. The stagehand had his hand on the door, ready to pull it open. A light came on behind me, not the one overhead. I saw him start to flinch. Not yet. He hadn't been at the rehearsal and didn't know it was the overhead light that was the cue. Then he got interested in what was happening on stage. He was able to see through a crack in the set. He was completely absorbed in what he was looking at, so when the overhead light flashed on, he was still looking on stage. Now I yelled, open the door. He jerked it open and I strode through, realizing immediately what he'd been staring at. Many of the people running around the stage were stark naked. Some of them were young, round women. Their bodies were covered with a white makeup, giving them a ghostly look, but they were still naked. My job was to remain rigidly at attention and look straight ahead. I assumed the position, but knew that no one could see my eyes, so I looked from one gorgeous Russian body to the next, comparing sizes and shapes just like the stagehand was. While I was enjoying this spirit-carrying experience on an undreamed-of level, the largish woman who had drifted my way during rehearsal returned. This time, she was wearing a nun's habit. Now, when you're on stage, a good actor should always be prepared for anything. I, wasn't. I was watching Beautiful Bodies. The nun apparently thought my stick with a battle axe on top was for pole dancing. She slung her entire weight onto it, grabbing it with both hands and went this way and that until she pulled me completely off balance. She outweighed me by about 25 kilos. I caught myself just in time. A moment or two later, the curtain fell, and I beat it off stage, closing door number three behind me. We could hear the applause all the way back to our dressing room. The Kirov opera had triumphed. I got dressed and left. The next night, the dressing room was buzzing with war stories. One guy let us know in no uncertain terms how disgusted he was by all the nudity on stage, male and female. Another guy hadn't calculated how tall the helmet made him and knocked it off when he walked on stage. But the best was number one. His stagehand opened the door on the wrong cue, just as my guy had nearly done. When he saw the door open, number one stepped through. He looked across the stage and saw no other conquistadors. He also noticed out of his periphery that there was no one beside him either. Undaunted, he pulled down his weapon, assumed a menacing stance, and glared. When he didn't see any invaders coming, he went back through his door and re-entered when the overhead light came on. There was more of a been-there-done-that vibe this night. Practically no one had all his gear on. You'd see one guy with his breeches and tights on and a hard rock T-shirt. Another guy had tights, the helmet, and sneakers on. One guy that caught my eye was sitting in a corner alone with an orchestral score in front of him. He had a baton in his hand and was in musical bliss conducting something. He even looked up every once in a while to cue the various sections of his imaginary orchestra. Someone announced we had five minutes, and there was a scramble to get in uniform. Then Rick popped his head in. Okay, guys, it's time to line up. I took my place with a determination not to get caught off guard or off balance this time. I would be a rock. If the flying nun wanted to whip around on my stick this time, I'd be ready for her. The overhead light came on, and my stagehand jerked the door open. I stepped out with purpose. Instead of planting my feet together, as I'd been instructed, I widened my stance and planted that stick on the stage. I was on the lookout for the nun when this gorgeous, voluptuous naked creature came right at me. Obviously, the blocking had a random aspect to it, because this sure as hell hadn't happened the night before. Just before she collided with me, she veered slightly to my right and then jumped up on a steel bar that was above my head. She was practically on my right shoulder. Then, bang, the nun hit me, completely by surprise. She flailed around on my weapon with a vengeance, yanking it back and forth with all her might, but I held firm. She eventually sank to the floor and came to rest on my foot. The naked one was still smiling down at me from her perch. Then the curtain fell. Back in the dressing room, everyone was in a hurry to strip out of their costumes and get out of Dodge. They scattered like so many dandelion pods. I was the last one out of the dressing room. And to be perfectly honest, I don't feel I ever need to do that again. I discovered that spear carrying isn't really my thing. But I wouldn't trade those two nights at the opera, twice as many as the Marx Brothers had, by the way, for anything. It was fun. This episode's song is just another notch on another cowboy's gun. The connection is that American country music is Nashville, Opryland, Opry. But the woman singing it for you is an Aussie legend. I call her Mabel. Mabel. You know her as the amazingly talented Michaela Bannis. I'm Chris Wallace.
1: This honky-tonk is lonely. The crowd is getting thin. The whole room stops and turns around when someone new walks in. The strangers always find me And before the night is done I'll be another notch On another cowboy's gun I used to be a beauty The best in all these parts When I sashayed into a room Didn't know my name Another pretty girl walked by the cowboy car-